Welcome to New Freedom Church. Our mission is to be real people walking and experiencing real freedom. If you're new with us, please like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get new content immediately when it's released. And we want to thank those of you who have shared our videos because it helps us to reach even more people with the life-changing message that there is a Savior who loves you and wants real, genuine freedom for you. And if you haven't done so already, go to newfc.org. Go to the Connect tab and share with us how we can best connect with you and your family to serve your needs. Year 2020 was declared in January, right from this very spot, to be the year of prayer at New Freedom Church. Little did we know what was about to take place in our nation and around the world, that prayer was going to have to be a center point of everything that we were doing this year. Prayer is always important, but I think in times of uncertainty, in times of trouble, uh, prayer becomes our anchor hold. It becomes the, the rock that which we run to. And we have been uh, in 21 days of, of uh, concerted prayer here. We're two-thirds of the way through that. If you haven't had the opportunity to um, see those prayers, some of them are as short as 30 seconds long, but we have uh, multiple people from the church praying. We put it on our social media. If you don't uh, get that, you can just like us on Facebook or Instagram. And then you can also go to our website and see those 21 days of prayer but what we've been doing is we've been working through the model prayer over the last several weeks, and, and uh, we've been talking about God's kingdom because it's front and center in this prayer, and we've been learning to pray like Jesus. Jesus' disciples came to him, and they said, Jesus, John's disciples know how to pray. John taught them, will you teach us how to pray? And so that's where this comes from. It's in, in many translations called the Lord's Prayer, but really it's not his prayer so much as it's the one he gave to his disciples to pray. It's the model prayer. And since he gave it to his disciples, by extension, he gave it to us. And so that is uh, what we're looking at uh, this week is another aspect of spiritual formation that happens when we pray this model prayer. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, you find in verses 9 through 3 this prayer. It's a prayer in response to the request of his disciples for learning or to teach them how to pray. And so... Here it is. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I want you to say that with me. I'm an audience participation preacher, so if something's good, you say amen. If I say repeat, you got to repeat, okay? So I'm asking you to repeat. Say this with me. Give us this day our daily bread. This is an important part of this prayer. In verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. All God's people said, amen. amen. There are many great places in the scriptures where bread is referenced. It's interesting as you, you look at uh, this, this simple, tangible substance that it has so much meaning to bear when it comes to looking at the scriptures. The Bible tells us that there are two types of bread from heaven according to uh, what God revealed to his people. The first kind of bread from heaven was revealed uh, 400 years after the Egyptian bondage in uh, God's people being suppressed and oppressed by Pharaoh. 
And we know that, that Moses was called to part the Red Sea and, and a great exodus happened and God's people came marching out triumphant and going into a land of promise, or so they thought. That's what they were told to do. They were told to go into a land of promise, but they ended up in a place of a wilderness. They ended up in a time of testing, a time of temptation, a time of trouble for 40 long years. They chose to stay in that place. It was just a three-day journey on into the promised land, but yet they found themselves camped out in a wilderness. And that's where we get the first reference to the bread from heaven. It says that God had provided them manna from heaven every single day that they could eat. They actually were grumbling and complaining. I know that's hard to believe about a bunch of church people grumbling and complaining, but it goes all the way back to Pastor Moses When Pastor Moses led these people out, he was the hero at the Exodus, but as soon as they were a couple days into the wilderness, they're saying, what'd you do? Bring us out here to starve us to death? Did you bring us out here to die? And it's so uh, reminiscent of how that we get in our own spiritual life that as soon as we have a great victory, some of you prayed today and you, you made a, a wonderful step back to uh, God and you made a, a wonderful uh, commitment, but you have to know that tomorrow the temptation starts, tomorrow the testing starts. Probably before you get out on Miller Road today from this parking lot, there's going to be a trouble or a temptation. Church people are real nice in the building, but you get them in the parking lot and that's a whole nother story. All the patience is gone, the anointing done wore off. (laughs) And so they get out into this wilderness, and it's so much like us as they were saying, Pastor Moses, what'd you do? Bring us out here to die. And they started grumbling and complaining. And so God said, no, I am going to provide in another way. You've never had provision before. Every single day, there will be bread, get this, bread from heaven. The psalmist calls it angel's food, (laughs) angel's food. It is bread from heaven that will come down every single day. But with everything that's good, there are always some caveats. There was a couple of instructions. The first instruction was this. This manna, this what is it, is what manna means. What is it? They didn't even know. It was like a small coriander seed, and and there were multiple things that they could do with it. They could just pick it up and eat it if they wanted to. It it, it was uh, sweet like honey. It kind of tasted good. It was something that they really wanted to eat. They could just eat it. Or they could grind it into a a flour and they could make cakes out of it. Uh, They could do multiple different uh, ways of preparing this manna. But the the problem with it was this. The the provision was for that one single day. If they saved up enough on Monday because they wanted to make sure they didn't have to go out hunting on Tuesday, then by the next day what would happen is that the bread that they stored extra would rot And in the morning, it will have grown maggots. Isn't that gross? But that's exactly what was told if they they take too much, other than the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was on Saturday. It was the day of rest. And so on Friday, they would have to gather up twice as much, and it would then last miraculously. God knows how this stuff works. Miraculously, it would last all throughout the Sabbath so they didn't have to do work on the Sabbath. So if they took too much during the week, it would rot. If they didn't take enough on Friday to go into the Sabbath day, then they wouldn't have enough and they would have to suffer hunger for that day. It would do some of us good to fast a day anyway, right? It would be okay. We could probably do that. But that was the prohibition against this manna. This was the first time that we see bread from heaven as being referenced in the scriptures. But there is also another reference to bread from heaven. When you get into the New Testament, Jesus borrowing from this same analogy, from this same understanding of of what literally took place in the wilderness, he said this, he said, I am the bread of life. And he talks about himself being the bread 
from heaven. In regards to the first part of this prayer, these people listening to Jesus' model prayer, going down through this and being spiritually formed, and okay, we got God as our Father, that's good. His name is hallowed, that's good. You know, He's holy, He's separate. God is other than this worldly thing, but yet He comes down in and He tabernacles with us. And so I'm, I'm following this. And then we, we get into the part of the prayer where we talk about His kingdom come and His will being done on earth. We talked about that last week. But then they get to this part and they hear these words Give us this day our daily bread. Their minds immediately in hearing Jesus say this would have gone back to that wilderness experience for 40 years, how their ancestors were given bread from heaven for their daily survival. So that was what would have initially gone off in their mind. And that would have been completely fine. And it would have been a reminder to them that that there is a a provision of God for today, but there is a dependence of God for tomorrow. Let me say that again. There is a provision of God for today, but there's a provision of God for tomorrow. We, like our ancestors of old, have this independent streak. You ever notice that? You can see an independent streak in little children. You tell them to do something and they don't want to do it, and you can force them at a young age to do it, but there's still that independent streak. And, and many of us kind of have that independent streak. It reminds me uh, of the little three-year-old that came to church service. Now, that's, this is why we have kids' church. This is why we have nursery. It, you know, the pastor loses anointing when he sees all this stuff happening out, out here and, and going out there. It, but uh, and, and the little kid came to three years old, and his mother told him, sit down, Johnny, in that seat. And he wouldn't sit down. He just wanted to play, and the kids just play like they have fun. And she said, sit sit down, Johnny, and he wouldn't sit down. Finally, she pushed Johnny down in his seat, and he said, Mama, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. We get this independent streak about us. We want to do it our way. And the reason that you and I want to gain more for tomorrow and and build it up and save it is because we don't want to have to depend on God every single day. God, I'm good with just a, a nugget every week. Just give me a revelation that I can last for a while. But God says, no, 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 a little won't do. You have to have new mercies every morning. You can't have some manna that has gone old and got grown maggots. You need a fresh revelation every single day from God. Every day is a new day with God. And so he said, give us this day our daily bread. The revelation that God has for you is sufficient for today. Don't try to carry that into tomorrow without any kind of fresh bread. You need God every single day, just like those in the wilderness needed God every single day. And Jesus will play in his ministry upon this theme time and again. As we are spiritual sojourners, foreigners in a land, as we're pilgrims passing through, through this wilderness of life, on our way to a heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. And these people were traveling through. And here's the interesting thing about the manna. For 40 years, this manna came down like clockwork every day except the Sabbath, every day except the Sabbath, every day except the Sabbath. They'd go gather it up. But as soon as Israel of old finally went into the promised land. You know, there was Joshua and Caleb that came back with the good report. There were 12 spies that went out. 10 of them said, no, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. The two said, yes, we can. We are well able. Well, that was only within the first week or so of them coming into the wilderness. It was 40 years that Caleb and Joshua had to watch everybody in their age group die. And a new generation was the ones that would take the promised land. They were the only two original that entered into that promised land. But here's the interesting thing about the manna. The day that God's people entered into the promised land, the manna ceased. The very day that they ate of the good fruit of that land of promise, there was no more manna given. 
And there will come a day when you and I will stand face to face with Jesus. We'll look in his eyes and there will be no more sighing, no more dying, no more crying, no more tears for he'll wipe away every tear from our eye. We won't need any new revelation because we will have all revelation. It'll be fully known. Right now we look through a glass dimly, but then we shall see as he is. But we're not there yet, church. And that's why we continue to pray this prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And today, I need the sufficiency of God's bread for my day today. This petition on the surface looked like it was addressing a a necessary natural provision. I mean, after all, we all have to have bread to eat to live. We have to have some kind of sustenance. Maybe, maybe you're on keto and you can't have bread right now. Well, you just need to substitute it for something. You, there's all kinds of ways to, to have bread that's not really bread. And it don't taste very good either, I can tell you. I've tried about all of it. You can't put enough butter on that stuff to make it taste good. But I mean, if you get a really big piece of bread and you, you dip it in those oils and then you ask for some more, I mean, that's, that's what, that's what the, the mindset is of getting this daily bread. And on the surface... It looks like the natural provision is enough. Like this is exactly what they were going to need. But Jesus oftentimes and probably always had a little deeper revelation knowledge than what met the eye. They tell me that the parables of Jesus, when Jesus would tell a parable, he would later go off with his disciples and they would say, now you're talking in code, Jesus. It's kind of like a riddle. Tell us, what did you mean by that parable? What do you mean by those things you said? And Jesus would tell his disciples, for you, it's to be known, but for them, they're not to be able to reveal it yet. They're not to be able to see it yet. I'll tell you. And he would go on to explain a little further to his friends. Are you a friend of God? Because God will let his friends in on the secrets. God does nothing in the earth unless he first reveal it to his prophets. And if you are hearing under an open heaven the word of God, then you will know what thus saith the word of God and what God is doing in the land. But a parable is tantamount to a time-release capsule. You know, some medicines that you take is that they have times on them that when you take a certain pill, it might be that you get the first dosage of it in your body in the first two hours, then four hours later, another dosage will come out, and you're so glad so that you can keep ahead of whether it's the pain in your body or a condition that you have, and so it's time release like a capsule. You get exactly what you need when you need it and not before. Well, Jesus' parables are kind of like that. Many times I tell people, hey, you need to read the word of God. Whether you understand it all or not, you just need to read. You need to read. You need to put it in. Because God can only draw out what you've put in. Your spirit's like a computer. What what you've put in, the Holy Spirit will draw out. It will recall that. I heard it explained to me one time like this. You ever uh, play marbles when you're a kid? I don't think kids play marbles no more. Marbles, you you take a piece of chalk, you draw a circle. You empty out all your marbles, you put them in that circle, then you take that big marble, the shooter ball marble, right? And you take your thumb and you would knock it into that circle. You would try to knock out some of those small marbles outside of there and whoever could get the most of their marbles outside the circle win the game. Is that how it goes? Well, God is like playing this game of marbles with us in the spirit world. And the Holy Spirit is that big shooter marble. And the more marbles you put in that circle, the more you digest the word of God, the more that you sharpen your iron with other people in classes and fellowship and, and getting in a small group and, and being connected to a local body, the more marbles go into that circle. And when the time is right, when you need it the most, that Holy Spirit marble, that big shooter marble, will be thrown in there by God the Father and those little marbles will come out. And you will have a word of wisdom. You'll have a word of knowledge. You'll have a word in season to someone who is weary. And you'll walk away from that environment and you'll say, Lord, help. 
help. I don't know how I did that. I don't know where that came from. I had never thought that before. I never knew that stuff before, but God's saying, no, I put it in there when you were sitting in service, half paying attention because you were giving yourself to me. I put it in there when you were reading the word half asleep, but you were giving yourself to me. I put it in there when you were in the time of prayer, when you were down and discouraged and busted and disgusted, but I had something else for you because I'm doing a greater work in you than what you can see on the outside. And that's what God wants to do. And so Jesus would give these parables. And you know, sometimes in the, in the ministry of Jesus, the most sharply criticized that he was was around a dinner table. Isn't it interesting? The bread of heaven offering bread to other people, yet he was criticized incessantly over this bread. And, and, and Jesus was sharply criticized for his dining habits of who he would dine with. And, and uh, I'm going to share a story with you here in just a minute, or actually just, just kind of a, a criticism uh, that was given of Jesus. But it illustrates that there are times when even doing the right thing, you're still going to get criticized. Let me say that again, because somebody needs to hear this. It's, it's almost Thanksgiving time. You're about to have some, some family fellowship, and you may not be looking real forward to it, especially in a political year, an election cycle, and you just need to know this, that sometimes you're going to get criticized even for doing the right thing. I was reminded of a story of a man that uh, had a neighbor who was a good, good hunting buddy of his. And they, they, these neighbors were really good friends, but they're kind of rivals. They kind of just would one-up each other all the time. You ever, ever had someone in life like that, a brother or a cousin or you know, a, a sibling rivalry? Well, this was a neighbor rivalry, and, and this guy liked to hunt. He went out and bought him a brand-new hunting dog. He went out by himself the first day with this new hunting dog just to kind of try him out to see how good is this dog? What can he actually do? He shot shot his first duck and the duck kind of uh, was meandering through the sky and then fell right in the lake. And he said, oh goodness, this duck fell in the lake. But to his surprise, his brand new hunting dog ran right on top of the water, grabbed that duck and brought it right back to the hunter. He said, wow, never seen anything like this before. Shot the next duck, same thing, went right in the water. The dog ran right on top of the water, brought it right back to him. He said, I got to show my neighbor this. The next day he goes out with his neighbor. He said, I'm not going to tell you about our hunting trip today, but you just watch, you just wait. You're going to see something you've never seen before. So first duck comes up, he shoots it. It goes right into the water. He looks to his neighbor and without batting an eye, that, that dog runs right out on that water, grabs that duck and comes back. His neighbor doesn't say a word. Well, he shoots another duck. Duck falls in the water. Dog runs right on top of the water. He says to his neighbor, what do you think about that? His neighbor said, well, looks to me like you've got a dog that can't even swim. (laughs) And sometimes, regardless of what you do, even if it's the right thing, you're still going to be criticized. And that's where you got to be like David the psalmist to say, I'm just going to encourage myself in the Lord. I'm just going to build myself up. If nobody else pat me on the back, I'm just going to find myself a praise place and I'm just going to encourage myself in Jesus. Luke chapter 7. Jesus criticized for his dining habits. Verse 33, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. So John didn't eat the right stuff. He didn't eat bread. He didn't drink what they drank. He had locusts and wild honey. I don't know about you. That doesn't sound like a real good diet. I think John was probably keto or something like that. <laughs> hey, don't get under condemnation if you're on keto. I'm just saying. It's, it's just it, not the same. He was criticized because he didn't drink wine and didn't eat bread. Verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John, who Jesus said was the greatest prophet ever to be born, 
They criticized him because he didn't have the right diet. Jesus, the son of the living God, comes and he does it completely opposite and he gets accused of doing it the wrong way with the wrong people in the wrong places. And sometimes, regardless of whatever you do, you're still gonna be criticized. So just do something. Pray about it, get a word from heaven, and just do what God said to do. Leave the results up to him. It's like we used to tell our kids, do your best and let God do the rest. And Jesus was criticized for eating with sinners, with tax collectors, with outcasts, with the downtrodden, with those that were misfits and outcasts from society. How many of us, truly and honestly, seek out opportunities to dine with, to buy a meal for, to have coffee with those who disagree with us, those who look different than us, those who smell different than us, those who are of different persuasions than us? How are you going to be light and salt in a world if all you ever do is hang with people that talk like you and walk like you and think like you? Have a little bit of Jesus example in you and go ahead and buy a cup of coffee for that person that disagrees with you and say, how is it you see things that way? I'm not here to criticize. I'm here to understand. I'm here to listen. We've had uh, uh, recently uh, some some talk on, on some of our social pages and someone pointed out to me the other day, they said, Pastor, there's somebody that, that's, that they're kind of getting critical of, of your messages. You know, we put up these little clips of message, lead people back in uh, to, the, to the full message, and, and we've had wonderful success of that. And, and there, there was this one that was kind of just maybe a little critical or, or whatever, and, and so I started talking with them online, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Not that I agreed with everything they said, but that somehow I looked at their questioning as seeking, not criticism, and maybe just perhaps they had done that before and they'd gotten unfriended, unfollowed, cast out, and so they think all the church people are like that. Well, what if we just show a little different side? What if we just show a little bit different humility, compassion? That's what Jesus was doing, and yet they called him a wine-bibber and a glutton. This was actually a direct quote out of Deuteronomy 21. They knew what they were doing. The Sanhedrin had come to criticize Jesus because they couldn't duplicate the works that he was doing, so they just had to find something to shoot holes in the activity and the the following that he had. And basically what this phrase meant was that here's a person, and they pointed their finger at Jesus, who breaks the traditions of man. He doesn't follow the social norms. He doesn't fit inside of our pre-concealed box. He's outside of the limits. We're just a little uncomfortable with somebody who does it the way Jesus does, so therefore, he must be a reprobate. Jesus must be a no good. And Jesus was the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus was dining with all the wrong people, but for all the right reasons. And he still wants to dine with all the people who think they're wrong who probably are wrong. Because can I tell you that a lot of the people who think they're right are wrong, oftentimes. And what was meant to be the greatest insult really turned out to be a great compliment. This was how Jesus was modeling the kingdom. Jesus was bringing the kingdom to bear to show them that the game has changed. 
that God is seeking to save those who are lost. He said it himself like this. Those who are well, those who are not sick, they don't go to the doctor. They don't need a physician. But Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus is looking for the hurting. He's looking to heal the hurting. He's looking for a people who will be a community of healers that are showing the light and the love of Jesus to a broken and dying world that is wayward and lost. And knowing that his audience would view this bread as a reason to celebrate, Jesus met their physical need and was a true miracle of provision, just like it was in the wilderness. Jesus taught this lesson using bread around the dinner table many times. And I say the dinner table, I don't know where they ate, but I know one time they ate in, a, in an out and open field. And what is it that Jesus used to feed 5,000 and plus women and children? was a little boy's lunch. What was that lunch? It was five loaves and two fish. Five is the number of grace. You add two fish to it. It's seven, which is the number of completion in God's word. And so Jesus brought a complete miracle to bear all by using some simple elements to feed their rumbling bellies. But it was an illustration that it's not just to feed your physical belly, your rumbling stomach, because you're going to get hungry again. How many can, can remember and recall that those, those, you know, I'm getting into Thanksgiving now, a great Thanksgiving meal, it's been prepared, and you go and you eat to your fullest, because all the, the calories only count half on Thanksgiving, can I get an amen? But a few hours later, after your nap in the football game, something happens that you end up back at the refrigerator again, don't you? Some of you don't want to say it, but I, I, we're real people real freedom around here, you end up hungry again, don't you? Because that bread was never meant to fulfill you forever. You have to go back and get more of that bread. Well, Jesus is our provision. So building on this, this key kingdom uh, theory, this kingdom idea, Jesus becomes this great provision. And bread and fish was given at the little boy's lunch. But then we turn into Luke chapter 15, and Jesus, again around a dinner table, tells us some of the most amazing stories in parable form for time release later that we've ever been told. He actually tells three parables here. Uh, one of them is very popular. The other two are, are lesser known, but, but they're nonetheless important. And that was first he talked about a lost coin. And Jesus said it like this. If a, a, a lady loses a coin in her home, will she not search and clean the entire home until she finds that piece of valuable money? Will she not do everything she can, turning it upside down to find that valuable coin? That is like the kingdom of heaven. That's how God seeks and saves the things that were lost. And then he talks about a lost sheep. And he said, if a, if a shepherd, a good shepherd, had a hundred sheep, and only one of those sheep would go astray, would not a good shepherd leave the 99 and go seeking after the one? And when he finds it with great rejoicing, he'll bring it back to the flock and hold it ever so close, not to chastise or to punish, but to discipline that sheep. And then he talks about the third and final parable in Luke chapter 15, which we may be a little more familiar with, and it's the parable of the prodigal son. It's the son that asked for his inheritance early, and his father, loving his son and knowing better for him, but didn't want to crush his spirit, gave willingly his inheritance early. And we know the story goes on that the prodigal son spends it on riotous living, 
on things of debauchery and things of this world, things that were, were just husks of this world to fill his, his need for a God-shaped hole, which things can never fill this God-shaped hole. As much as we try to drink it up and eat it up and sex it up and, and entertain it up, we can never fill the God-shaped hole on the inside with anything less than God's spirit living on the inside. It's a story and a picture of how that this world will always disappoint, but God will never disappoint. And I can just see this father as he's waking up every single morning, looking over the horizon to see maybe today this will be the day where my son who has gone wayward will come home. And he would wake up and he would look every day. But finally the moment came where this prodigal son, the Bible says this, that he finally came to himself. In other words, he figured out and he got his wits about him He had had all that the world had to offer and it did not satisfy. It left him worse than he started. And he said, you know what? I remember, and this is why it's vitally important to do things like we did yesterday, where we had hundreds of people on these grounds outside ministering to little kids, showing them the love of Jesus. It's vitally important that we put those memories of them coming to God's house as a positive thing because the day came when that prodigal son, he said, I remember that in my father's house, even the servants had plenty to eat, much less those in the family, but even the servants. I remember fond memories of my daddy's house. Maybe if I go back there and humble myself and repent that he'll let me at least be a servant so that I can have a little bit of food that comes off of the table. That was his rationale. That was his logic. The prodigal son made his way back home, and the Bible says that when his father saw him afar off, that he came running. He put on him a robe and a ring. He told his servants, kill the fattest calf. We are having a feast for my son who once was lost has now been found, and he is back home. And the Bible goes on to say that there was rejoicing in heaven among the angels for the one that came back home. Can I tell you this morning that there's rejoicing in heaven for everyone that comes back home. And this was a celebration, a festive moment where Jesus, again, around a dinner table illustrates bread. Let me, let me keep moving. Jesus is our provision. According to John 6, he builds on these themes of bread and then he takes it to a whole new level. Are you ready for this? This is a whole new level revelation right here. Jesus says in verse 48, I am. Somebody say, I am. am. These are the I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. He's not now just talking about how bread is made, the bread from heaven in in the wilderness. He's not talking about all the logistics of how you serve bread. Jesus is now saying, look at me and you're gonna see the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This isn't a derogatory statement, but Jesus is saying the bread which they were given from heaven could not sustain them for eternal life. It was only given day by day for them to rely and depend upon God. They ate that bread and they're not walking the earth today because that bread only filled the stomach. I have some other bread to give you and here it is. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, verse 50, that one may eat of and not die. I am the bread of life which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Somebody say forever. Forever. That's a long, long time. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This is a a brand new concept. This is a mind-blowing concept. Jesus is now telling a group of Jewish 
Torah-observant disciples that they are now to eat his flesh. This would be tantamount to cannibalism, which would be strictly prohibited in their religion. And this was a hard saying to hear. But let him who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says. Because he wasn't talking about eating his physical body. He was speaking in terms of spiritual life. About what was happening soon at his betrayal, he was talking about his body being broken and his blood being poured out. But here's, here's the sad reality of this scripture right here. You look at verse 66 when you get home, and it says that many who heard him say that, from that day on, they turned around and followed him no more. In other words, the, the physical revelation on the surface of the word of God don't, chill, don't, don't kill, don't cheat, don't steal. You know, all of the, the laws, I can do that. They said, yep, we've done all that. But when it goes to the depth of the spiritual revelation, now all of a sudden they were offended. They couldn't handle this kind of teaching. They couldn't open their eyes up and their minds up to see that God had so much more than just physical bread. And it says they turned away and they followed him no more. My question to you today is, is there something about the gospel that is offending you? Is there something about Jesus that you just find a little disconcerting? Because I'm going to tell you right now, there are some things in this book that will challenge you to the core that you will not want to conform to, that you will not want in your flesh to do. And sadly, many walked away and they followed him no more. Jesus said, woe to those who are offended because offenses will come. But don't stay there. Turn it over to God. Let the offenses go. And this prayer for daily provision would meet not just the physical but also the spiritual needs. And some people might conclude this. Why do I need to ask for something in prayer if my heavenly father already knows it. I'm, I'm beyond the offense part. I'm beyond all of that. But why do I really have to voice my prayer? Why do I have to say this model prayer if God already knows what I have need of? God knows what I have need of. Well, here's what I would tell you, that it's important that you make big requests like a child. Make your big request like a child, just like the, the simplicity of a kid. That's important to do, that we come boldly before God just like a child. I noticed something. My kids, they're beyond, far beyond the worry that we're going to take care of them in their physical needs. Like we've never made them miss a meal, so they really don't have to to worry about that. But what happens is when you already have the, the basics covered, then you can have a boldness to ask for bigger things. If you don't think that kids can ask for big things, just get a hold of a seven year old's Christmas list. And you'll find out real quick that there's some fantastical things that they can dream up, that they can want and ask for. And they're not bashful to ask for something really big and bold when they know that they're in the presence of parents who love them. But we as adults, you know what we do? Is we use our logic to conclude what God won't do. Well, I've been serving God for all these years. I've been asking for this and only other people get that. Oh, it's only the church people, those that attend four times a month that get that. It's only the people that know the Bible really, really good. And so we withhold ourselves from asking for so many good things from our father because we don't feel worthy or because our experience has dictated that we're always gonna get disappointed because people have let us down, particularly even people in the church and we equate people in the church with God. Newsflash, big mistake, okay? They may be servants of the Lord, but he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. 
Don't make me sing up here. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. Don't equate the people of God directly with God. They're fallible. They will mess up. And man will fail you, but God will never fail you. Put your faith in God. Don't put your faith in man. But as adults, many times we conclude what God won't do based upon our circumstances, our disappointments. But when we are finally out of options, now now hear me, when we finally, as adults, get to the place where we can't fix it, we don't have enough money to bail them out. We don't have enough supply to give to everybody. We have a physical need that the doctors have said, the percentages of you recovering from this are very slim. We don't know that there's any other treatment for you. When you finally find yourself out of options, then you get serious with God. And when we can humble ourselves like a child, to come with childlike faith, to make a big request from God, then the miraculous is on the horizon. In his book, The Circle Maker, Mark Batterson tells of a, a story just like this from many years ago. It's the story of Honai. We want to tell you the story of Honai right now. Watch this. I'll be right back. Young children danced in the downpour like it was the first rainfall they had ever seen, and it was. Parents drew their heads back as they opened their mouths and caught raindrops like they were libations, and they were. When it hasn't rained for more than a year, raindrops are like diamonds falling from the sky. It would forever be remembered as the day. The day thunderclaps applauded the Almighty. The day puddle jumping became an act of praise. The day the legend of the circle maker was born. It was the first century BC, and a devastating drought threatened to destroy an entire generation, the generation before Jesus. The last of the Jewish prophets had died off nearly four centuries before. Miracles were such a distant memory that they seemed like a false memory. And God had not been heard for 400 years. But there was one man, an eccentric sage, who lived outside the walls of Jerusalem, who dared to pray anyway. His name was Honai. And even if the people could no longer hear God, he believed that God could still hear the people. When rain is plentiful, it's an afterthought. During a drought, it's the only thought. And Honai was their only hope. Famous for his ability to pray for rain, it was on this day, the day, that Honai would earn his moniker. With a six-foot staff in his hand, Honai began to turn like a math compass. His circular movement was rhythmical, methodical, 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 270 degrees, 360 degrees. He never looked up as the crowd looked on. After what seemed like hours but had only been seconds, Honai stood inside the circle that he had drawn. Then he dropped to his knees and raised his hands to heaven. With the authority of the prophet Elijah, who called down fire from heaven, Honai called down rain. Lord of the universe, I swear before your great name that I will not move from this circle until you have shown mercy upon your children. The words sent a shudder down the spines of all who were within earshot that day. It wasn't just the volume of his voice, it was the authority of his tone. 
not a hint of doubt. This prayer didn't originate from the vocal cords. Like water from an artisan well, these words flowed from the depth of his soul. His prayer was humble, yet resolute, confident, yet meek, expectant, yet unassuming. Then it happened. As his prayer ascended to the heavens, raindrops descended to the earth. An audible gasp swept across the thousands of congregants who had encircled Honai. Every head turned heavenward as the first raindrops parachuted from the sky. But Honai's head remained bowed. The people rejoiced over each drop. But Honai, he was not satisfied with a sprinkle. Still kneeling within the circle, Honai lifted his voice over the sounds of celebration. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain that will fill cisterns, pits, and caverns. The sprinkle turned into such a torrential downpour that eyewitnesses said no raindrop was smaller than an egg in size. It rained so heavily and so steadily that many people fled to the Temple Mount just to escape the flash floods. Honai stayed and prayed inside his protracted circle. Once more, he refined his bold request. Not for such rain have I prayed, but for rain of your favor, blessing, and graciousness. Then, like a well-portioned sun shower on a hot, humid August afternoon, it began to rain calmly, peacefully. Each raindrop was a tangible token of God's grace. And they didn't just soak the skin, they soaked the spirit with faith. It had been difficult to believe the day before, the day before the day, now it was impossible to believe that this actually happened. Eventually, the dirt turned into mud and back into dirt again. After quenching their thirst, the crowd dispersed, and the rainmaker returned to his humble home on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Life returned to normal, but the legend of the circle maker had been born. Honai was celebrated as the hometown hero by the very people whose lives he had saved. But some, those within the Sanhedrin, called the circle maker into question, a faction believing that drawing some circle and demanding rain was dishonoring to God. Maybe it was those very same Sanhedrin members who would criticize Jesus for the healing of the shriveled man's hand in the Sabbath a generation later. They threatened Honai with excommunication, but because the miracle could not be repudiated, Honai was ultimately honored for this act of prayerful bravado. The prayer that saved a generation was deemed to be the most significant prayer in all of the history of Israel. The circle he had drawn in the sand had become a sacred symbol, and the legend of Honai, the circle maker, it stands today and forever as a testament of the power of a single prayer to change the course of history. So what about you? Is there something that you have been longing for God to do? A provision that you have long needed, but maybe you just haven't asked or you haven't asked in a big way. Well, we're gonna pray here in closing and we're going to ask God for big things. I want you to get it on your mind right now. What is it that if it was certain in your heart and mind that it was absolutely possible, what would you ask? If you knew that it could not fail, what would you ask? I mean, a big, audacious, a big, 
bold, a big rainfall type of blessing, a big ask of God that if he doesn't do it, it doesn't get done. What is it? Heads bowed and no one looking around. Jesus said this, to this point, you have asked nothing in my name, but now ask. Ask from your father that your joy may be complete. Do you have complete joy today? For many of us, there's still some things lacking that we need and we need to ask from God. Like child would ask from their parent with childlike humility and faith, we need to ask from God, what is it today? Let's lift our prayers to heaven. God, today, for whatever that you have placed on the hearts of your people to request, a big request, we ask of you, our Father, give us this day our daily bread. Keep us dependent upon that provision every single day so that we don't become independent from you. God, I pray for those that have come with a need in physical body, a need in spirit, a need in their mind. I pray that you would do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. God, I lift to you our nation. Our nation is unsettled. Our nation is divided. Our nation is so divisive one to another. Today, we lift up to you our nation. Your people repent. And we appeal to heaven today that you would hear from your holy mountain. You would hear from heaven that you, God, would forgive our sin and you would heal our land. God, we pray for a mighty revival to sweep through this land. We pray, God, that you would cover this earth like the knowledge of the Lord covers the seas, like you would fill your people with its glory and that we would see your everlasting goodness. God, show us your face. Do it again upon your land. We ask, we request, we beseech you in the mighty name of Jesus. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. I just can't wait for next week. You're not going to want to miss it. Thank you for sharing on social media and please subscribe. And if this message has impacted you in any way, would you just write a rating or review for us so we can reach even more people with this message? Your generosity really does make a difference. So to give, please go to newfc.org and click on the giving tab or click on the link in the video description. We love you. We'll see you real soon.